Hello and welcome to Loving God Through Loving Neighbor, a special six-part class from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thank you for joining us. Let's listen in. All right, so welcome. Welcome for braving the snow, which I've learned in in the Midwest, this is not really a big deal, so (laughs) welcome for being yourselves. I am Alexander Massad. I am assistant professor of world religions at Wheaton College. Uh, This is our second year here in the Midwest. Um, We've never been in the Midwest before, so we are still learning about winters, which I've learned also this is not a normal winter. It's been abnormally warm. So I'm sorry for bringing the warmth. But uh, yeah, my wife Kelly and I, we came to Knox, I think a month after Dave and Becca. So our our time here is about about the same same as theirs. Um, So we've moved all around. We've been married. This this will be our 15th year, and we've lived in nine different places uh, in 15 years. So we are looking to not move (laughs) is our goal. Um, But yeah, I've, um, I've done this class in a number of churches in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Pasadena, suburb of Los Angeles. Um, I think it's really important just for the church to be able to understand um, what does it mean to be faithful followers of Jesus in a world that's increasingly diverse, not just culturally, which we talk about, but religiously. Um, And moving here to Naperville and seeing the number of mosques and uh, Hindu temples um, and getting to know uh, so the rabbis at the synagogue in Lombard um, and just kind of seeing the religious diversity here and hearing about the, the mission uh, of the church as we kind of launched it this past year, I thought this would be something that hopefully is really helpful for the congregation. Uh, what does it mean to be missional in our church to fulfill kind of the, the desires that we have to serve the Lord and see his kingdom in Naperville and beyond? So that's kind of my intention of the class. Uh, the way I want to go about it is I'll talk for about 40, 45 minutes and then leave questions at the end, the last 45 minutes. So I want to give a lot of time for questions at the end. Um, my approach to this is very broad and survey level. So I'm going to give kind of a bunch of big ideas. I'm not going to drill down deeply into any one of them, but rather I want to see what ideas really catch you or interest you, and then leave Q&A as a time to dig deeper into whichever idea strikes your fancy. So that's kind of how I'm going to approach each of the classes and each of the days. Um, A little bit about myself. So I am uh, half Lebanese, half Mexican. My father was born in Beirut. My mother uh, and her side of the family has been in South Texas since the time of the conquistadors. So the borders have moved over us. So from Spain to Mexico to the great nation of Texas. If you ask some Texans, it's still the great nation of Texas uh, to to the United States. Uh, So we've always been in South Texas. Uh, My father worked for Saudi Aramco Oil Company. So I grew up my first 16 years in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I have family in Lebanon and Egypt. um, So I've lived and worked uh, in uh, Egypt after college. Did my bachelor's in Middle Eastern Studies, Middle Eastern History, International Relations. Taught at high school for a bit. Uh, did my master's at the University of Virginia, Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures. You're Wahoo? Wahoo There you go. <laughs> um, started my doctorate degree at Georgetown University in Comparative Religious Studies. 
uh, wanted to do stuff in Reformed theology and Islamic studies, really great for Islamic studies. Georgetown being a Catholic institution wasn't great for Reformed theology. Um, at this time, my wife, her work had moved her to Los Angeles, so I transferred my doctorate to Fuller Theological Seminary, which is where I finished my PhD at Fuller Theological Seminary. So that's kind of my educational background, some of my bona fides of uh, where I'm coming from in this class. Um, but I really kind of want to start today with why bother? Like why even bother to go out and engage with people of other religious traditions? So that's what I want to start today with. Why bother? Okay. So I want to start with some detractions, some things people might think or you might hear about why this might not be a worthwhile endeavor. So you might think or some might say, well, if Jesus is the truth and the life and through Jesus and life is through Jesus, then why bother with other religions? Right? Jesus is truth and life is through Jesus. Why look anywhere else? Like, what's the point? Or if sin has corrupted humans, then why engage with other religions? Because they're still in sin and there's no grace. Why go out there? Or what do religions have to offer Christians if Christianity has the gospel? And they don't. Like, we have the gospel. Gospel's truth. They don't. Why bother? Or if salvation is only through Christ, then what is there to find in other religions? I'll come back to these questions later on, but I kind of wanted to bring these out as some of the things people might think or hear. Uh, if you don't, that's fine too, but I just kind of want to, I want to, I don't want to give a presentation, especially in interreligious dialogues of just one position. I think it's important to really start with what are some problems? What are some problematic ideas rather than just painting a rosy picture? So this is why I want to start with this. So I want to give three reasons. I am thoroughly reformed and Presbyterian. So they all start with R and they're three. So. Recognizing our context, recounting scripture, and they also, also have R-E-C, and O, look at that. So recognizing our context, recounting scripture, and reconsidering grace. So these are the three ideas I want to talk about as we contemplate why bother engage with other religious traditions. So first, recognizing our context. So... Oh, this flipped. Anyway, that's fine. Um, so in the 19th century, there was a movement called, which we call now modernism. And the reason I'm bringing, I'm starting with philosophy is I think it's very important to recognize not simply our demographic context, but the context of the Christianity that we claim to adhere to in the United States. So in the United States and arguably Protestantism abroad, because missionaries from the United States and Europe have exported Protestantism abroad, we tend to be modernists. We tend to have this idea that what we, we seek knowledge that is certain. You might hear the phrase, certainty of salvation. Are you certain you are saved? So knowledge equals certainty. We have this idea that moral values are universal. What is moral for my culture is universally moral. So that there are universal ethics and standards that everyone knows because we think they're obvious. We have this idea that individual people on their own, if left to their own accord, are rational and responsible. And people can use their minds and their reason to engage the world and discover the things that are in the world. Because creation around us is made in a way that 
it's like a machine. It's ordered, it's structured, and it's objective. So all in all, modernism is this idea of objectivity. Objective truth, objective morals, etc. Arguably, Christianity still operates in this type of paradigm. However, our world doesn't. Our world is postmodern. So if you... <laughs> Uh, your kids the student, and the students I teach are postmodern. They live in a world that they see as very diverse. They see on their phones, they see through the internet, the diversity of opinions, a diversity of interpretations. And it's, they're very quickly disabused of this notion of objective reality or objective truth. So very much they are postmodern. So what does it mean to be a Christian in a postmodern context where knowledge is not objective, but it's contextual. So what someone thinks is knowledge in the United States may not be knowledge in Japan. And that may not be counted as knowledge in Nigeria. And may not be counted as knowledge in Argentina. It's contextualized. Morality is the result of who has the power to declare what is morally right and wrong. Morality is contextualized from the postmodern perspective. Individuals do not exist as silos, rather they are parts of a community. So the reason a person thinks the way she or he thinks is not because they've rationalized by themselves, rather they are part of a communal whole. And finally, the world is not objective. What we think the world is, is a result of our interpretation. Or another way to put it, postmodernism is interpretation. Modernism is the belief in being objective. So I'm establishing this because I want to push on the idea that we should care about this. <laughs> right, so he's talked about philosophy. Great. Who cares? Well, if we are operating as modernist Christians who want to be faithful to the gospel, we need to be able to talk in a postmodernist way. Otherwise, we are just talking around people and past people or people just hear us and say, that's great. And they just walk off. Because we're not speaking into the cultural context in which we exist. So, what does this look like? It looks like acknowledging, and actually, uh, Pastor Becca mentioned this this past Sunday when she talked about the difference between trust and belief on the one hand and certainty on the other hand. In her sermon, she talked about trusting and believing rather than being certain. She's talking into this postmodernist context where faith as Paul defines is hope in that which is not seen so what does it mean to have faith in something you are not certain about because you haven't actually seen it you trust it you have faith in it for example if I'm talking to somebody who's Muslim in the in, uh, Arabic speaking context the word for faith in Arabic is rooted in the word to trust or security those are related. Trust, security, and faith are all related terms. So it has this notion of trustingness rather than objective certainty. To acknowledge that what we consider knowledge or what we consider insight may be culturally conditioned. So what I find really interesting is reading the parable of the prodigal son. But in different contexts, the prodigal son gets interpreted very differently. Sometimes people focus on the elder brother. Sometimes people focus on the father. We tend to focus on the younger son. 
But reading scripture in different contexts will illuminate other aspects and realize our cultural conditioning. And to another aspect is the church as a community. So what does it mean to be a communal church rather than individualistic church? I was actually just talking to a recent graduate from Wheaton and um, this person was bemoaning the fact that they felt like an island in their church. And part of it was me encouraging this person to get more engaged and volunteer. And that's part of being a part of the church. But if you go to, I, I was telling another, uh, my class earlier this week, when I was in Mexico and I went to church and there was passing the peace, it took about 30 minutes. Because if you started there, you'd be at the end of the other side of the, of the church talking to somebody else. And it took you 30 minutes to work your way all the way to one side. Make sure you talk to everybody and you have to work your way all the way back. Right? And here, we tend to do like the pass the peace circle sometimes. You know, sometimes you might like venture out, you know, but it's, it tends to be a little bit more isolated. And so I think there's, what I'm trying to point out here is there are certain ways in which this postmodern thought is not necessarily a danger, but it can be helpful for us as Christians to rethink our Christian faith. One of the things I really want to put, think about is with regards to other religious traditions. So when we think about uh, missions and evangelism. Many times we have the language of saving souls or are you saved? And again, this is not necessarily incorrect, but, and this is not my argument. This comes from Leslie Newbegin, who is a, a very uh, important uh, missionary to India for over 40 years. He talks about how the language of saving souls leads people to think you don't care about them. Because the language of saving souls is asking what happens when you die, not how are you right now? So are you saved is only a question that shows that this person is asking about your dead person, but not taking care of the challenges you have right now as a person. The stress, the oppression, the struggles. So it's not about saving an individual soul, but rather causing holistic flourishing. I was talking to my students earlier this week about uh, Jesus' metaphor of salt. And I like the metaphor of salt, but um, how many of y'all cook? Okay, well, that's a lot. Good. How many of you have eaten something that's been cooked? Good, there you go. All right. So salt is actually doesn't add flavor. Salt increases the flavor that's already there. Because if you take salt and you lick it, it's not really that great. But when you add it to a dish, it makes the dish great. Right? This is different than if you take like soy sauce and you, you know, drink a little soy sauce, like it's salty, but it has flavor, it has umami, etc. Salt really is just kind of harsh. But you add it to a dish, it's amazing. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus amidst this diversity and this kind of new pluralistic context? To make that which is already there flourish more greatly. Not necessarily to add something new, which we do with the gospel, but it means to cause that which is already there to be better. And so I really like the metaphor of salt in this postmodern context in the idea that when we engage with different opinions, when we engage with different perspectives, different truth claims, it's not our job to change them necessarily, but to bring them to their higher wholeness in Christ. And so that's why I like this, this metaphor of the, of the salt when we talk about engaging with diversity. 
<clears throat> so if Jesus did bring truth and Jesus is life, then what has this to do with religious diversity? So I want to re kind of revisit the first series of detractions. So a possible response is, well, what does it mean to say that your understanding of Jesus is the only way to understand Jesus? And this is not simply amongst different Christians. I have a really good friend of mine. He is a, uh, a Muslim converted from Christianity to Islam. And he believes sincerely that he is a better follower of Jesus by being a Muslim. Now, him and I disagree. But I find lots of insights about the way he thinks about Jesus that help me think about Jesus in different and better ways that I think make me a better follower of Jesus. Now, we disagree on the person of Jesus and is Jesus fully divine, fully human, etc. I still find insight in the things that he thinks about. So who's to say my definition of Jesus is the end-all, be-all of who Jesus is? Jesus is greater than me, thank God. And I have much to learn from people who see Jesus through different lenses. I, I, I like to lead, I frequently led uh, scripture reading groups. So Muslims and Christians will read the Quran and Bible together. Uh, I'll pick a passage and they read scriptures together. And it's always fascinating to see Christians watching Muslims read scripture and hearing their interpretations of scripture and vice versa. Muslims seeing Christians read the Quran and their scriptures and seeing Christian interpretations of their scriptures. And the insights that people get from one another and think, I've never seen it that way before. That's really interesting. If sin has corrupted humans, then why engage with other religions? Well, possible responses. Does not sin run through the hearts of the redeemed and the unredeemed? Just because we're in Christ doesn't mean we stop sinning. Just because you're not in Christ, it doesn't mean you are totally devoid of any insights. Christians can err and non-Christians can have insights. What do religions have to offer Christians if Christianity has the gospel and they don't? Well, if other religious traditions have insights into what we call culture, then what is the difference between culture and religion? And in some contexts, that's really, there is really no difference between what is cultural and what is religious. Here in the United States, we separate them mentally, but many contexts, they're not really that separate. The idea of what is religious and what is cultural. And so if we are open to accepting cultural differences and cultural insights, at what point do you take that away from a religious insight? If salvation is only through Christ, then what is there to find in other religions? The response would be, how do you know that you are saved? How do you know in the idea of certainty? I always like to remind myself, my students, of Jesus' parable of the wedding feast. Those who think they're invited to the wedding feast may indeed not be invited to the wedding feast. And those who you think are not may not. Now, does this mean we all throw our hands up to the wind? No. Again, it's about faith and trust in the Gospels and the traditions and Scripture. But we are not the arbiters of salvation. Again, thank God, it is God who is the arbiter of salvation. It is God who is the one who decides. We are saved by grace, through faith, not by works, nor by our efforts. We're saved by grace, and it's God's grace that extends to us. So we are not the arbiters, but we trust in God who is the arbiter. So let's recount scripture. 
something I think is very important as we talk about this is, is this in the Bible? <laughs> is there a warrant in the Bible to talk about this? And I think it's very important as Christians to root whatever we try to do, especially with regards to faith and practice in Scripture. So, first, the church has to wrestle with what we call the scandal of particularity. Amidst many different competing claims, the church has the audacity to claim that we have a unique story amongst other stories in the world. And that is a, in the world of pluralistic interpretation, scandalous to say, no, this is the, we believe this is the correct one. We believe this is the correct story. But then the question is, how do we go about justifying and living that out? So there's one thing to claim it, one thing living it out. Because other religious traditions also have unique claims. I tell my students, you'll, I highly doubt you will find someone of another religious tradition that you tell the gospel to, and they say, I always knew I was wrong. <laughs> now that you've told me, I realize I'm wrong. Thank you. No, people believe what they believe because they think they're right. right? Muslims think they're right, and Jews think they're right, Hindus think they're right, Buddhists think they're right, and we think we're right. And so it's about <laughs> sharing narratives where both people think they're right. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. This is just more recognizing the context in which we live in. And so I want to focus not so much on the question of salvation, but I want to focus more on the relational question. Who are you, who are we, in relation to who is God? Rather than, are you saved or not? Again, as reformed, in the Reformed tradition, we do have the doctrine of election. Broadly stated, it means, again, God decides. I have no idea how God decides. Nobody has any idea how God decides. Because nobody knows the mind of God. So the question of salvation is not mine to say yes or no. It's not yours to say yes or no. It's not the pastor's to say yes or no. It's not for the missionary to say yes or no. It's for God, through Jesus Christ, in the work of the Holy Spirit. Which is incredibly, incredibly stress-relieving. Because it's not your job to save people. It's your job to be faithful. And God saves people. God saves people through the work of faithful followers of Jesus. Which is great. Because if you say something and you are faithful and that person is not saved, that was God's choice. You didn't do anything wrong. So I want to move away from the question of salvation when we talk and engage with other religious traditions and move into the relational question. So Old Testament. What are some Old Testament examples of engaging with those who come from other religious traditions? So in Genesis 14, we have Melchizedek, who is a priest of El Elyon, which sometimes scriptures will translate the Lord Most High. Where did he come from? Right, you have the story of Abram, and he leaves, you know, he, he's leaving Ur, and he's going to the land of Canaan. He arrives, and oh, there's this guy who's the Lord, priest of the Lord Most High who's there before he got there. Where did he come from? And he shows up, and he blesses Abraham, or Abram at that point, and then he leaves. But he's a priest of the Lord Most High. He's not doing what Abram's doing. He's doing something completely different. But he's a priest of the Lord Most High. Again, I'm not saying... 
I know what he is. I'm just saying it's interesting that scripture acknowledges that there are people who are following the Lord most high that are outside our perceived prescriptions of what God does. In Numbers, Balaam, even though the king of Moab hires Balaam to, so he goes to Balaam and says, there are all these Israelites coming into my land. I want you to curse them. And Balaam goes, let me go talk to the Lord most high. And the Lord says, bless them. Don't curse them. Huh. Well, Balaam, who's a Moabite, who in in scripture, the Moabites and the Amorites are condemned as being outside the pale of God's people, just outside. Which is also interesting because Ruth is a Moabite. And Ruth is part of the salvation line of Jesus Christ's lineage. But this Moabite, Balaam, is a servant of the Lord Most High and follows what God says. In 2 Kings 5, Naaman, the Syrian general, trusts Elisha that his leprosy will be healed. Now, he doesn't convert. He doesn't move into Israel. He stays where he is. But he trusts in the Lord Most High. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, 27 through 24, 22, that whole section is almost word for word. I mean, there's some parts that are different, but almost word for word taken from a more ancient Egyptian wisdom literature called the teachings of Amenemope. And so the Israelites were like, this is wisdom and have included it in scripture. And Jonah is sent to the Ninevites. The Ninevites are Assyrians. And what do the Assyrians do after Jonah goes to them and gets them to repent to the Lord Most High? They go and destroy Israel. Jonah is sent to the people that will destroy Israel. And the people that will destroy Israel repent to God Most High. They're not Israelites. They're not part of the covenant on Mount Sinai. So again, this is not so much to say this is justification that what they're doing is right. It's more, this is interesting. This opens the door to thinking about what is God doing outside my perception of who's in and who's out. In the New Testament, we have Jesus and numerous Romans. So we have Luke 7, Jesus healing the centurion's slave, but no story of the centurion converting. In Luke 17, the, of the lepers who are healed, it is only the foreign leper that comes back and thanks Jesus. And the Samaritans were considered outsiders. They were not considered part of the people of God. Because way back when, in the 8th century, when the Assyrians came and destroyed Israel, so they destroyed Israel, which was the northern part, Judah and the south remained. What the Assyrians did is they took the uh, 10 tribes in the north and dispersed them all throughout the ancient Near East. So they were lost. Now the tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin and the Levites, they were taken to Babylon, but they stayed together. So when we talk about like the Jewish people, it's the people from the south. The 10 tribes in the north are lost. So this is why the Jews in the south did not consider Sumerians in the north Jews because they've been dispersed, they've been intermingled, they're no longer part of those tribes. They're foreigners for all intents and purposes. But it's the Samaritan that's praised for his moral qualities. The foreigner, the outsider. And then in Acts, we have, again, a number of affirmations of Gentiles who are seekers after God. And Paul quotes pagan poets to the Greeks saying, Have not you written, for in him we live and move and exist, and in, um, 
I can't see that. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So he's quoting pagan Greek poetry to Greeks to make his case for Christ. So still utilizing insight and wisdom he finds in other religious traditions to do what? Bring that salt to highlight what he sees it pointing to, which is Christ. So reconsidering grace. So we're Presbyterians or we're in a Presbyterian's place. So I'm going to talk about Reformed theology. <laughs> So Reformed theology, we have a number of ways of thinking about grace. One of them is called general revelation. General revelation is not only the act of God creating, but it is also the act of God sustaining that which was created. So it's not the idea that God created, deposited, walked away. Rather, God created and creation continues because God is actively within and moving in creation, causing it to develop and move and grow. And its aim, what we call telos, its aim is the new heavens and the new earth. But it is God working within creation. So in other words, creation is not static, it's dynamic. Another type of grace we talk about is common grace. There's external common grace, which is the kind of prevention of sin overrunning the earth. But there's also internal common grace that moves all people to more fully desire the image of God. So this is the third form of common grace, which is the image of God. So the image of God is being not just made in the likeness of God, but also God bestowing on humanity as a whole God's likeness. Now, what I mean by that is we can think about it two ways. We tend to think about the image of God as individuals. This is back to that modernist idea. I have the image of God. You have the image of God. We all have the image of God. Great. But rather, Reformed theology, we think about the image of God as a communal image. That each of us, manifest a particular aspect of the image of God. I'm different than you. I have different interests than you. I have different talents than you. Each of us manifesting our talents is manifesting different aspects of the image of God. When you take humanity as a whole, all the talents, all the wisdom, all the insight, all of that is more holistically the image of God. Because this is showing God's breadth and creativity and diversity around the world, rather than siloed within me. And so we have these three forms of grace for, if you take the individual communal, kind of working with each other. Now, I want to put a kind of a pin on this notion of grace here, because I'm going to come back to it later. But I want to talk about the word religion. We talk about religion and tradition. Okay, I think it's important when we talk about other religions to think about what we really mean when we say the term religion. So religions themselves are human creations. They're human creations in responses to events that humans believed were divine. What is Buddhism? But the thing that people did in response to what Siddhartha Gautama did below the Bodhi tree. What is Islam? But the things that people did in response to their experience of the Prophet Muhammad. What is Christianity? But the thing that people did in response to Jesus. People responding to events that they believe are divine grow into what we call religions. 
Religions are not the founders. The founders caused the religion. Now, there are still Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus, etc. So the religion that starts there has to be transmitted over time, and that's what we call a tradition. So a tradition is the act of trying to transmit from one generation to the next generation the beliefs and practices that we consider most dear. So when we talk about a religious tradition, what is the Christian tradition? But the tradition of translating the gospel as faith and practice from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, in an attempt to be faithful to the original event. And we can get it right and we can get it wrong. We can do it well and we can do it poorly. I say this because it's important to recognize that traditions are made up of people who are fallible and err. And just because people in a tradition err doesn't mean that whole tradition is covered in error. I would definitely hope that's the case when people see Christianity. And to say, well, those Christians are bad, therefore all Christianity is wrong. I'd hope they don't say that. And if I want people to not say that about my religious tradition, then I want to extend the same grace to other religious traditions. To not universalize one event as the whole, but to realize the diversity within traditions. <clears throat> oh, I got ahead of myself. Sorry. That's what, that's what this slide says. <laughs> okay. So, I'm going to put these together. So as a reformed theologian, my presentation to you is that religious traditions are human responses to the multiple forms of grace in the world. All people experience common grace. Creation made by God, the triune God, and sustained by the triune God. All people around the world have the image of God, which is the image of the triune God. All people around the world have common grace, which is also given by the triune God. All people around the world are affected by sin, which corrupts all that. But doesn't mean it's dead. So what I want to present is the idea that religious traditions are sincere responses to these multiple forms of grace around the world. And what is the scandal of particularity but Christians saying that, yes, all of these responses to grace are good and true and beautiful and Jesus is the fullest manifestation of that. And it is our responsibility to be faithful in our engagement with other religious traditions to say, I see how in Buddhism there is this discussion of suffering. And there's lots of insight about suffering. Let's talk about the suffering servant. Or I see in Confucianism this idea of the family and family structures. Let's talk about what that means in the church as a family. And so to be able to recognize and celebrate aspects in other religious traditions, because we see God's grace operating on other religious traditions, and then to be faithful followers of Jesus to say, yes, and how can I learn from you? And let me tell you about the gospel. If you've ever done improv, I don't know if anyone's done improv, but if you've ever done improv, there's something called yes, and. So if somebody does one action, you take what that person does and you add to it. So for example, if I'm doing improv with someone and I sit down and I'm pretending I'm eating a meal, the person next to me will then 
be a waiter. So, you know, they're saying, yes, I accept what you're doing and I will add to it. So if I'm sitting here and that person is pretending to fly an airplane, our dynamic makes no sense. And so this is how I see interreligious dialogue is more yes and. Yes, I see how God's grace extends to all humans individually and communally and the gospel. Yes, I see external and internal common grace in all people of other religious traditions and the gospel. Yes, I see how God is always present in general revelation around the world and the gospel. Salud. So, in conclusion, what does a postmodern Christianity look like in a diverse religious world? It is one where we are open to God working in other religious traditions in ways that may surprise us. It is one that is grounded in the uniqueness of the Christian claim to be the caretakers of the gospel from one generation to the next. And it is willing to rethink our understanding of the gospel in light of insights we find through other religious traditions. So this is my kind of overarching big, big ideas, uh, reason about why I think we should bother to engage with other religious traditions. This has been the Loving God Through Loving Neighbor class from Knox Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our missions and ministry, visit us at knoxprez.org. That's K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can join us for worship in person or watch our live streams every Sunday morning. Thanks, and see you next week.